Today we're going to be talking about lesson five, the hollowing out of the family, the hollowing out of the family. And I, I will go ahead and apologize in advance. There's a lot of stuff in here that deserves to be handled with a lot of nuance and sensitivity and care, and I won't be doing that <laughs> because, <laughs> because then we wouldn't be able to get to nearly as much interesting stuff. So there you go. But in previous lessons, we've talked about expressive individualism as sort of the basic belief of our culture. Um, can anybody define expressive individualism at all? Basic ideas about it? It's, it's two parts. It's that you have an individual psychological core, and the purpose of your life is to express that psychological core in relationship with others. This is the belief of expressive individualism. Okay? Um, we talked about embellished justice that divides the world into oppressed and oppressor classes. We talked about the breakdown of the collective and duty and hierarchy and the things associated with that. So all of those themes are going to run through this discussion about the family. Um, those lies, it's not so much a new set of lies here it's, as much as it is a way that those lies we've already talked about are intersecting with this particular and very important topic that is the family. So I'm going to give you four cultural lies that impact the family. Number one, gender is a social construct. Gender is a social construct. So, of course, uh, by a social construct, we just mean something that is it's made up by people. There's nothing innate about it. It's just something that society came up with. So we talked about the idea of Marxian class-based oppression, and there's always two classes, and the, the, you know, one is always oppressing the other. And so this gets applied, of course, to gender as well, right? Um, so the basic claim is that uh, men and women are no different by nature. Therefore, if their outcomes are any different in any respect, it must be the result of some kind of oppression. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. I'm going to look at kind of three subsections of this point. I'm going to talk about gender characteristics, gender roles, and then gender itself. Start with gender characteristics. So some polling from Pew asked Americans whether they perceive differences between men and women in these five different areas. So they asked Americans, okay, are, are men and women basically similar or basically different in these five different areas? And this is how Americans responded. And this is kind of from most similar to least similar. So the things they're good at in the workplace, 63% of Americans said, yep, they're basically similar. Their approach to parenting, 35% said, yeah, they're basically the same. Their hobbies and personal interests, 32% of Americans think they're basically similar. Physical abilities, a little less, 23%. And then how they express their feelings. Interesting to me that that's even more different than physical ability. And only 13% of Americans think men and women are basically the same in how they express their feelings. Uh, those 13% are wrong, if that was <laughs> in question. Um, so of the people who are, you know, said, okay, they're basically the different, they were then asked, all right, is there difference because of culture or because of biology? And it was on most of the things it broke down about half and half, uh, and with the only exception being physical characteristics, which only about 21% of people said that this was because of culture. It's kind of nutty if you think about it, that they think that men and women are physically different, but only because our culture doesn't encourage women to bench press enough. And if the, the culture changed, <laughs> then, then that would solve the problem. Um, so you can see there's kind of this hardcore segment of Americans, maybe 15, 20% of the population, something like that, 
that thinks there's really no difference between men and women, and to whatever degree there appear to be differences, it is all just social conditioning. Gender is a social construct in their view. Now, they're following in the trails blazed by second wave feminists from the 1970s, like Shulamith Firestone, who said, the end goal of the feminist revolution must be not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. Gender differences between human beings would no longer matter culturally. That's the point of second wave feminism, according to one of the, the leaders of the movement. So now we've talked a little bit about what our culture thinks about gender characteristics. Let's talk about gender roles in the minds of our culture. So of course, if gender is a social construct, then all differences between men and women are matters of some kind of oppression. So we'll take that same feminist leader, Firestone. She specifically proclaimed that, quote, the heart of woman's oppression is her childbearing and childrearing role, and suggested that in the future, the only solution to free women from this oppression was to create artificial wombs through technology, or of course, just to abandon motherhood altogether, and then we can free women from their oppression. Um, for any of you who are new here, the first section of this, we're talking about lies. We're not talking about things that are coming out of the Bible. <laughs> okay. So she very deliberately based her work on our, our old friend Karl Marx and just had this very intentional Marxian two class. She talked about women seizing control of the means of reproduction, just to play on words with Marx seizing control of the means of, of, of production. And so that's why it's very important to feminism that women can be whatever they want as long as they do not want to be wives and mothers. That is not an acceptable choice for women to make on their view. Why? Because they think that that is a form of oppression um, that, that needs to be done away with in some sense. In the words of Betty Friedan, founder of the National Organization for Women, also a, a leading feminist in the 60s and 70s, quote, Women who adjust as housewives, who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as, you ready for this? The millions who walk to their own death in the concentration camps. I've been to Auschwitz. I've met mothers. I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> um, but that's the founder of the National Organization for Women. So that's very mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, yeah, well, generally these second-wave feminists were not. So on the Pew study, Pew is generally pretty good about getting nationally representative samples. So I don't know specifically, but I think if you dug into it, yeah, it's probably going to be a pretty even breakdown. Um, as far as, so there is a difference between second-wave feminists, the 60s and 70s leaders, and third-wave feminists, which kind of 90s and post, and that's where you start to see some of the LGBTQ stuff coming in. Well, really more the transgenderism is more of a third-wave feminism thing. Certainly, there were a lot of lesbians in second-wave feminism. I can't speak to these particular women, but you know, they're, they're like top five feminist leaders, so that would be an easy Google um, on, on what they actually believe personally. Um, and we'll actually get to a little bit of a conflict between second and third-wave feminism in just a second here. So according also to Betty Friedan, 
Um, of course, she doesn't think that being a housewife in you know, her 60s word was um, you know, an acceptable thing for a woman to do. But she said, beyond that, the only kind of work which permits a woman to realize her abilities fully, to achieve her identity in society, and you hear a little expressive individualism in there, is the lifelong commitment to an art or science, to politics or profession. Okay. So the only thing that makes you worth anything, on her view, is a career in that sense. Uh, one of her contemporaries, Simone de Beauvoir, took it a step further. She said, no woman should be authorized to stay at home to raise her children, because she thought too many women might do that. And she argued that as long as the family and the myth of the family and the myth of maternity are not destroyed, women will still be oppressed. So therefore, in order for women to be free, the family has to be destroyed. And these are not fringe leaders, and these are not like fringe feminists. I want you to understand that when I, I'd heard some of this stuff in books before, but I went and checked it out myself, and these are the ones that the feminists of today are still talking about analyzing their writings, their books. They're not just coops that I pulled out of the pile. They're the leaders of the movement. This is what they believe. So, of course, a woman you know, can be whatever she wants as long as she wants to be a man. That's the only thing that we're okay with a woman wanting to be. And in the words of a former feminist and actually someone who was a formerly a part of the National Organization of Women, she just recalled it this way. Feminism began to advocate that women should behave like men. Whatever men did, however they did it, that's what women should do. Feminists were angry at men, but they wanted to be like them at the same time. So we talked a little bit about the effect of the culture on the choices of women. I'm just going to throw this one out to you. What do you think the culture says to men? But at this point, being a man is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. Especially a white man. Right. Well, I mean, let me tell you what's going on. Yeah. So we are told to defend ourselves. We are told that being masculine is wrong. Like on all morally, like you should go to prison kind of stuff. Like we are taught now to treat it like dirt sometimes just because we just, this is my genitalian because I like So yeah, it's equally bad. Yeah, so, so essentially, women should be men, and men should be women. <laughs> it's almost like we need two genders, um, but they're just not the, the happy with the way God set it up, so we'll just invert the order. So the, those roles were abolished, but it's kind of like when you, you hold a, a beach ball underwater, it just keeps popping up, right? And so the roles keep presenting, and I think by design, but... But the pop culture works really hard to keep these roles blurred. What are some examples that you can think of in pop culture or general trends where they're trying to, to blur or downplay the roles of men and women? They all, it's, it's constantly making fun of men. Yeah, so making fun of, of men, husbands, fathers in particular. Yeah, and, and actually you mentioned uh, toys. It's kind of 
reminds me. So my mother grew up influenced by second wave feminists, kind of grew up as a, a sociology major at a, you know, in an East Coast university. And so she raised my oldest sister and I initially with the idea that gender is a social construct. And she gave my oldest sister um, a truck and a doll to play with. And my oldest sister just used the, it was a kind of truck that you could push around. She just used it as a baby carriage, you know? And I did not use it that way. And so my mom just observationally was like, I don't think this degree I got is worth anything. Because <laughs> it doesn't work in real life. What else in pop culture? Well, I think you're not going to remember this commercial, but I think it was in the 70s. There was this commercial where this woman was, you know, she had her business suit on, you know, and she's like frying up the bacon, but she's bringing it home. Do you remember that? Hey, hey. Okay. Yes. You know, I mean, so that anything that needed to be done, this woman could do it. Yeah. She didn't need anybody else. You know, I mean, and, and it was, that was just who you should be. Mm -hmm. You know, this wonder woman. Yeah, I don't. I I can see it in my head, but I can't remember what the, what the point was. Yeah, so, Laura. Uh, our girls came home from school a couple years ago, and they're like, "Great news! We can join Scouts now because it's not Boy Scouts; it's Scouts." It does pain me a little bit. <laughs> I'm an Eagle Scout. That's, well, yeah, that said, well, but, you know, I mean, on the, on the flip side of that, like, I also understood that a lot of girls were like, well, Girl Scouts, in, in their experience, the people I talked to, I, didn't, I wasn't a Girl Scout, but they're like, it's just kind of a, it, it's not, it's not very cool. So, um, and, and there's like a lot of feminists sort of teaching in it, and it, it just wasn't that, wasn't that practical. So they were like, let's, let's actually go camping. Um, but yeah, so there, there are a lot of things that we see in pop culture. I mean, just, I like action adventure stuff, right? And so I, last night I just watched a, 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 a petite woman in an action adventure show take out three massive men in a fair fight, right? And that's just so important to our culture that we just portray things that are not realistic, but it's not just that we're suspending disbelief because that's just what action adventure is, right? That's fine. But we have to suspend disbelief in a specific way that causes us to change our view of reality. And that's what's really important to our pop culture. Even actual movies, they change characters. Yes. Make it like it was if it was a man character in the book. Yeah. So let's just briefly touch on gender itself. Um, so you have these two words, gender and sex. You, you might understand that the word sex in this context refers to your biological characteristics. Gender refers to um, the aspects of your, you know, being male or female that are more social in nature. So, for instance, I think it's probably true that more women prefer pink than men, but I don't think that's biological. I think that is, in fact, cultural. Uh, in the past couple hundred years, we've determined that that color is more feminine, right? So there's gender versus sex. Now, what's interesting about this semantic distinction is it's actually new. This whole semantic distinction that I just shared, and that's what I thought was just dictionary, it is dictionary, was created by second wave feminists. Um, the word gender historically was used almost exclusively to talk about grammar, to talk about the case of nouns. And so there was no, 
there technically, technically it was used sometimes, but it was almost never used to talk about it in the way that the dictionary now says it is used. But so this is a definition of gender that I would say is second wave feminism, but is not third wave feminism, right? So this is the Shulamith Firestone era. Um, gender is a part of the apparatus of patriarchy, a social system built on the biological foundation of human sexual dimorphism. Now that's the part that is second wave feminism, but didn't carry over which is allocated different roles, rights, and responsibilities to male and female humans. Okay, so that's second wave feminist definition. So they used to understand, all right, we have cultural constructs for gender, but it's built on a real thing, which is your biological sex, which matters. That's what they thought in the 70s. And then the third wave feminists, and, well, and, and the whole you know, queer movement and so forth, came along and said, actually, that whole biological distinction thing doesn't matter. Gender is a spectrum. And their evidence for gender being a spectrum, it basically just comes down to two things. There are two pieces of evidence for this. Um, thing one is some people feel like it is. Um, that's their first and primary piece of evidence, which ties into expressive individualism. We've already unpacked that. Thing two is that there are some birth defects which do affect sex characteristics in some people, which is kind of like saying that some people are born with two heads so the number of heads humans have is really on a spectrum, right? Um, you know, who's to say how many heads anyone in this room has, right? So that's not a very good argument. But the interesting thing about this breakdown is that now we've kind of gotten to the point where we say that your, your, the gender inside your head is immutable and unchangeable, but your sex, your biological characteristics are alterable by surgery and so forth. So we're going to change the one and, and leave the other alone. Um, that's what our culture thinks about gender. Let's move on to uh, the, the second lie. Second lie is that the purpose of marriage is to fulfill you. Purpose of marriage is to fulfill you. Amen. So why, why do you think people get married today? What are people's reasons for getting married? Happiness. Probably the big one. Any other reasons? Tax breaks. Tax breaks. Because the wedding itself yes. is something that they want to express their individuality in. Yeah. Yeah, so Pew did a study of this. Uh, 90%. What's that? So they can get married again. <laughs> um, 90% cite love as a major reason. Of course, love, we know, has a very broad range of potential meanings and understandings to the individual. 30% um, cite wanting to have children someday as a factor, and 13% cite finances or convenience. So tax breaks does make a list. Um, so from the research of Eli Finkel, who's a secular researcher, wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage, the average marriage is getting worse in terms of people's perception of their own happiness inside that marriage. People are also um, perceiving that the happiness of their marriage affects their overall life quality more. So they care more about their marriage in some sense, but they're less happy with it. Now, on his view, um, which I think is sensible, for most of human history, spouses were primarily workmates. So they had pretty low expectations of each other. And then we moved to where we had um, you know, better standard of living, maybe over the past couple hundred years, and we started to think more about love and companionship. And so we had a little higher bar. And then now we've gotten to a point where, of course, back then we had roles to play and that could give you some sense of fulfillment for just doing your part. But we broke all the rules. We uh, adopted expressive individualism. 
and we began to look to our spouses as a means of our self-actualization. So our spouse is supposed to complete us, to perfect us, to bring forth our inner angel. And, and so another way to look at that is that as the collective has broken down, as we have less and less family and community to turn to, we turn to our spouse for more and more. So we used to have friends and workmates and elders and mentors and community in general, but now we just have our spouses, so they have to be everything. They have to be our counselor, our personal trainer, our best friend, our career counselor, and our tennis partner. Um, and we've got to get everything in that one package of our spouse. And now, and of course, a lot of people have also lost God, so then our, our spouse also has to replace God, which is pretty, pretty big shoes to fill. Um, the result of this is that people are less happy with their marriage because, of course, happiness is reality minus expectations. And when your expectations are way up here, it's really hard for anyone to clear that bar. I would also suspect that people are probably a little less happy because they have less of a sense of duty. So they have less of a sense of what they need, of, of that they need to be contributing. And of course, if everybody just ha wants to have a 50-50 marriage, everybody's going to think that 35 is 50 for them. And, you know, that's, that's just human perception. So generally, people are not as happy with their marriages. And of course, what happens when your marriage doesn't fulfill you? You walk away. You know, when your marriage doesn't fulfill you, you leave it. So with the, the best estimates that I can find, you'll find higher numbers, but I think this is probably a more reliable figure, is that divorce rates are about 35% of marriages end in divorce. Uh, it's actually kind of tricky to measure for a number of reasons. But there are certainly other factors besides high expectations for marriage that lead to high divorce rate. What might some of those factors be, in your opinion? Occupation in, in what sense? So, and maybe people choosing to pursue really high income occupations that are really grinding and doctors and lawyers and, and corporate law and whatever. Yeah. Yes, a bit. Say again. Let's say, for example, someone leaves another. They get money from that. That is an incentive to break the contract. Yeah. I know that that sounds very non-biblical because well, the majority of my is not biblical. It is a contract between them and government, and so that's what it is. There's a huge incentive to just leave. I get paid to leave. I'm yeah. unhappy, so why shouldn't I just leave and take money? So less of a sense of duty, more of a sense of self-interest, and financial incentives that push people in that direction. Sure. Um, and I, I added to that too, uh, kind of a reduced sense of social shame. Um, of course, decrease religiosity in general. So let's look at the trends over time. The, the best way to, the most accurate way to measure divorce, even though it's not the most intuitive, is to think about the number of divorces in a year per thousand people. Not, actually, not necessarily married people, but just per thousand people. Uh, in the 1800s, that was about 0.3 divorces per 1,000 people. By the 1940s, it climbed to about 3.4 divorces per 1,000 people. It dropped a little bit in the 50s and rose in the 70s to where it peaked at about 5.1 per thousand people. And today it's actually declined about to 1940s levels. However, with the way you're measuring these statistics, that also means that um, when marriages decline in general, when there are just fewer people married, then the divorce rate by this measurement will also decline. And there is a significant decrease in marriage. So in 1970, 72% of American adults were married. 
Today, that's 45%. So you said 70? So in 1970, um, 72% of American adults were married. Today, 45% are married. And so cohabitation has risen, but it hasn't made up that gap. Most Americans are just, a lot of Americans are just living alone that would have been married um, years ago. And of course, people get married much later in life as well. Interestingly, college-educated people are about twice as likely to get married and stay married. So the divorce and lack of marriage is particularly concentrated among the poor and working class. Um, and that's new in American history. There, there hasn't been a class gap in marriage until the past 20 or 30 years. Historically, the classes had marriage rates that were about the same. And long before we allowed same-sex marriage as a society, we allowed no-fault divorce. Most of those laws passed in the 1970s. Now, that's essentially us as a society saying that your commitment to your spouse has no implications outside of your own personal happiness. Therefore, there should be no legal limitations on you entering and leaving those arrangements at will. And of course, to a lot of people, their sense of morality is affected by what is legal. So that which is permitted is considered acceptable, and therefore um, social stigma decreases as a result. So no-fault divorce was essentially us acquiescing to this belief that marriage is primarily about happiness and fulfillment as a culture. And then when the same sex, you know, when a, when a gay man came along and said, hi, I would like to have personal fulfillment and happiness too, it seemed very cruel to deny that. Of course, we didn't have a moral framework in order to do that. We didn't have a sense of what marriage was for. So, well, you should be happy too. And that was the exact argument that was used. But the church, the culture kind of lost that fight in the 70s and, and didn't fight for it very hard because I think a lot of people in the church were cool with no-fault divorce as well because that's convenient for everyone um, except for the children, which is my third point. Um, children are an obstacle to our fulfillment. Children are an obstacle to our fulfillment. So I looked at a BuzzFeed article that asked women who chose not to have children or weren't planning to have children why that was the case. Um, listen to the expressive individualism in these quotes. Um, number one, I didn't want to lose myself as an individual. Losing my identity, my career, and my freedom. Note that my identity is tied up in my career. Um, I work in the green energy industry, and I try to do what I can because not all hope is lost, and I have to try for the sake of my young nieces and nephew. I was so mad at my sister when she announced her third pregnancy, exclamation mark. But ultimately, I don't want kids, and I've learned just not to even say that to people now. I feel really strong for standing up to society's expectations. Another one. I have a dream job that will take up a lot of time and energy, and it's incredibly important to me. Because of the nature of the job, it comes down to my kids or kids or my dream. This is my dream, and it's a dream I've had for a long time, and I couldn't live with myself if I gave it up. So. What happens when she gets pregnant? Yeah, there's that. <laughs> so we don't have children. Or if we have children accidentally, we can kill them. Because, of course, on the view of expressive individualism, you're humanness is tied up in your, your personal identity, and because the unborn don't have, or the infants really, don't have as strong a sense of identity, they're not really humans, and so we can kill them on this view. On the flip side, there are many people who choose to have children, but do so as a means of personal fulfillment. 
right? So you can, you can have the same worldview and come to different conclusion because it's all about what you want on the inside. So I found a community of, they call themselves single moms by choice on the internet. So women who, who choose to have children and, and without being in any kind of relationship. So this was a couple of their rationales. This was a little narrative. So then my sister came in for a visit. We spent the first two and a half hour part of the drive talking about how unhappy I was. I needed to make a change, but what? Do I change jobs? Do I look for the same type of job or find something completely different? Then our conversation took a turn. I said, I wish I could just have a baby. Here's another one. You can't wait for a man to come in and make your dreams come true. You have to make your own dreams come true. That's what I told myself at some point. And here's actually one of those BuzzFeed ones from somebody who doesn't want kids, but it actually incorporates both. I don't think people should be mothers unless they can't imagine living without becoming a mother. Permanence makes me feel uncomfortable and a child is a permanent massive life change on top of these personal factors. Um, and it, what's permanence a synonym for? It's really a synonym for duty, responsibility, things that, commitment, yeah, things, things we've lost as a culture. On top of these personal factors, it feels so socially irresponsible. Overpopulation mixed with the reality of climate change is a recipe for disaster, famine, and death. I genuinely believe that all governments should be encouraging one-child families. The planet simply can't sustain us. So, there you go. Point four. Oh, please share. I have a, a piano student right now who, who said to me recently, I really would like a baby, but I haven't found the right guy. So I'm thinking of just sleeping with somebody to get pregnant. Just anybody. In Joplin, Missouri. Yeah. Point four. Children owe nothing to their parents. Children owe nothing to their parents. So there is a natural reduction in fertility rates as society becomes more wealthy. That's just true across the board, across, across time. Some of that is simply because survival rates of children go up. You go to an old cemetery, there are a lot of child tombstones. Um, it was not uncommon in kind of the frontier days for a family to give multiple children the same first name because they wanted that name to survive to adulthood and the odds were that one of the children would die. So that makes sense. People had more children and then when survival rates go up, there's some natural, okay, I don't need to have 15 to have six survive, okay? But there are other reasons that people traditionally had more children. So traditionally, think kind of Bible times here. What were the reasons or some of the reasons why people would have children? They, they needed work on the farm. Yeah. Children contributed very directly to whatever it is the family did. Yeah. So why would Catholic families have a lot of kids? So just a perception that children were a blessing, right? And, and that's certainly something that um, traditionally people would have had more of as well. What else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
children do become easier once you have, at a certain point, the marginal cost of an additional child lowers. I'm one of five, and we kind of took care of each other at a certain point. You know? um, so in addition to that, children were your retirement plan. right? They provided security in your old age. They carried on the family name and legacy, which is really important to a collective society because you don't think of yourself as just disconnected from your children in some broken stair-step chart. You think of your line as an unbroken thing that goes into the past and into the future, and you don't want to be the one to break that, and you value that. You want to continue that. Um, it grows the clan, the tribe, and the nation, which is important to a collective, and then it, it increases your status and honor in the community because you're growing the clan, the tribe, the nation. Um, so in general, children were contributors. Both in childhood and in adulthood, children brought something to the table. So we look at children today as radically autonomous individuals from a very early age, um, if not from birth, free from all inherited wisdom and any obligations to others. We kind of pretend like they were born in, in John Locke or Rousseau's mythical state of nature. That's, that's the ideal, the gold standard for raising your children these days. And of course, we talked in expressive individualism how the belief is that children are un uncorrupted and everything society teaches them is just corrupting them. So the more you teach them, the worse they know, I mean, the worse they are, right? Um, so I didn't pull any quotes on this, but I read a lot on the internet about how dangerous it is to teach your children to be obedient, how obedience is not a virtue. And basically, you're a terrible person if you teach your child to obey and they will inevitably join a gang or become a Nazi because they won't know how to say no to anyone. Um, but the reality is that everyone teaches their children something. There's, there's nobody who really just lets their children think their own thoughts. And so by default, our culture is steeping children in expressive individualism and embellished justice and radical individualism and all this sort of thing. Um, and some of those ideas are, of course, very harmful. And so the irony is that even as our culture has embraced exposing kids to really harmful ideas, like the idea that um, you know, the ideas that make them anxious and depressed and ideas that they might be trapped in their wrong body. Um, that, that's kind of a horrible thing that would, would happen to you, right? So we're exposing to those really harmful ideas and simultaneously we have become terrified as a culture of letting our children walk around the block. So this is actually a checklist from 1979 that asks, is your child ready for the first grade? Those, is, is this, these are standards a six-year-old should meet. Um, the only one I pulled off the list here is, can he travel alone in the neighborhood four to eight blocks to a store, school, playground, or to a friend's home? <laughs> the streets were not safer in 1970. Crime and kidnapping is objectively lower today than it was when it peaked in the 80s and 90s. Um, so we're more aware of crime now, but it is not safer. That is important. It's not more dangerous, rather. Um, that is important to know. But in most states, you would be arrested for letting your six-year-old walk eight blocks away to Dollar General to pick something up. Um, but that was normal uh, at that time. And on the contrary, in Germany, who, since she was like eight or nine, takes the bus from our town in Germany 30 minutes to her school. By, it's a public bus. It is not a child's bus. And she takes it 30 minutes to school and 30 minutes back every day for like five minutes. And that's just normal. And it, it is. 
And like I said on the individualism lesson, it's, it's really good to keep in mind that when we say culture, it's not just the whole world. A lot of it is America. Europe has some of their own foibles and quirks and some of the same problems, but different problems. Um, so yeah, this is a probably uniquely American problem with the, the helicopter parenting and the coddling. So we simultaneously coddled our children and stunted their growth and ability to actually learn from experience. So, so they can't learn from experience anymore. Then we told them that they will not receive any inherited wisdom either. And they're just going to have to feel out morality from whatever it is that comes from inside of them. And then we also tell them that there are equals in all senses and owe us nothing. And then we wonder why so many young people go off the rails. Because that is a perfect recipe for that end state. Yeah. And it's kind of weird. Things like kids might have a smarter and more complex and superior to get into, right? So it's like you have to do more for them, but also let them do their own thing. Yeah. You can't teach them anything, but you can't also let them learn from experience. It's it's a really painful thing and um, to, to try to navigate. So that's a bunch of lies. That's a pack of lies. We're going to close the pack of lies. We're going to unpack some truth here. Let's talk four points of truth um, in, in general parallel to what we already discussed. Point number one, men and women are different. <laughs> men and women are different. So let's look gender characteristics, gender roles, and gender itself. Gender characteristics. So there are numerous difference, uh, differences observable at birth, even down to like a baby girl will respond a puff of air at like one day old differently with slightly different reaction than a baby boy. So there are many characteristics that are obviously observable from birth. In general, of course, we know women tend to be more interested in people than things. On the big five personality scale, which is a very stable and reliable personality measurement tool, women tend to be um, more agreeable than men, and they tend to have higher levels of negative emotional energy. Okay? Um, so sort of anxiety um, that the technical term is neuroticism, but in general, that's <laughs> the set. So there, there are other characteristics, um, conscientiousness, extroversion, that men and women are, you know, about the same on. There, there is certainly more difference between individuals than there is between men and women as categories. So what we have is two bell curves, and the bell curves overlap, and there's quite a bit of overlap space in between on pretty much everything, right? So personally... Um, my agreeableness level is like twice the average woman's level. It doesn't make me a woman, right? Um, but because of that overlap on the bell curves, you're going to see more difference on the extremes of any characteristic. So, for instance, men and women tend to live to different ages. You're not going to necessarily notice an age difference if we were just to do a survey of middle-aged folks. But if you look at the 5% of oldest men and the 5% of oldest women, you would notice a significant difference. Okay? So whenever there's a characteristic difference for the population on the overlapping bell curves, when you look at the ends, that's where you're going to find the most extremes. By that logic, if women were as a group somewhat more inclined, say, to be nurturers than men are, even if not every woman is, then in professions that are really nurture-oriented, like nursing, or kindergarten teacher, you would expect to find a lot more women than men, which is exactly what you find. And on the other end of that, if, if men are 
on average, a little more aggressive in risk-seeking. You would expect to find more of them self-selecting into the military, law enforcement, fire departments, and so forth. That's exactly what we find. Jobs that have a wide mix of skills or skills that don't tend to be uh, significantly different between men and women have very similar ratios of men and women. So you can look at uh, real estate, retail, paramedics, kind of has an interesting mix of, of nurture and risk, right? So you actually find a pretty good blend of men and women there. Culture says, though, that it's a bad thing whenever there's a disproportionate number of men and women uh, in, a, in a field. And there is a lot of hand-wringing articles on the internet about how few women firefighters there are and how we really have to fix that as a culture. Um, but in, in Management 101, you learn that if people have inclinations and, and attributes, you can try to train them to do something different, or you can just encourage them to specialize in what they're already gifted at, right? And that's actually a much better strategy for managing people. So even if culture is pushing men and women to be more different than they would be without culture, if that were a, a useful thought experiment, that's not necessarily a bad thing because they are um, they're potentially achieving, um, achieving uh, something more effective in that setup. So it's kind of like trying to fix this problem. It's kind of like trying to get your accountant to become a graphic designer. Like You could do it, but why would you do that? It doesn't make much sense, but it makes sense to the culture. So we'll just, we'll just roll with it. But the Bible clearly teaches that men and women do have different roles in the home uh, and in the church. At a minimum, if we're talking about, um, let's focus on the home here, because we're talking about the family in this lesson. So the Bible always refers to husbands and wives separately and gives them separate instructions. Interestingly, you do a Bible search for the word spouse. It's not in the Bible. Um, it doesn't have any instructions for spouses. It's kind of related uh, is the word parents. Actually, the German language has no singular for parents. It's the word Eltern, which is kind of a cognitive elder, right? And there's only a plural. You, you can't say parent in German. Well, what can you say? You can say mother, Mutter, or Vater. You've got two options. But So there are parents collective, but if you're a single, well, you're either a mother or a father. That's the German language. The Bible actually does the same thing. I'm not claiming this is uh, the original language, but the way the Bible uses the language, it does use parents in the plural, but whenever it refers to singular, it never says parent. It always says mother or father. It gives different instructions to both of them. So what are some of those instructions? Um, we can see Ephesians 5.28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ loves the church. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Colossians 3.8, wives, submit, yourself, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So we talked a little bit about um, gender roles. I actually skipped over some of my gender characteristics. So let's go back there. Uh, I talked about the characteristics that are different at 
birth, uh, agreeableness, and, and that sort of thing. Let's briefly cover physical strength because I think it's pretty intuitive to you, but there's a, there's a particularly interesting um, way to think about it. There's a website called boysversuswomen.com, and it just compares the scores of two events, imaginary matchups between the world's best women at the 2016 Olympics and America's best high school boys at the high school national track and field um, of the same year. Okay? So we're comparing the best women in the world versus the best high school boys in America, and we'll just kind of think of them as two different countries in the Olympics. So if there were 29 gold medals, boys pick up 28. Best women in the world pick up one gold medal. Out of 58 silver and bronze, boys pick up 53. And a lot of these are 14, 15-year-old boys that are beating the best women in the world's 100-meter time, for instance. There's a little bit of convergence um, on endurance events, so things like marathons. Um, the, the performance starts to, to uh, get closer together, and that's why you see that women do pick up some of the medals. But there you have it. I don't think um, inserting men who call themselves women into women's sports is going to be particularly fair to women. And so when, when I've been interested in what does people on the left say about that, because like the facts are pretty clear, um, actually when I went and looked it up, what they say about it is it's really not going to be a big deal. It's not going to happen very often. It's very rare that a woman is ever going to lose first place because a man identifying a woman is in sport. So let's just mark that down as a prediction of the left, and we'll see if that comes true. Oh, yeah, it's, it's... I mean, it's just, that's just a joke. Yeah, it's, it's certainly proven wrong. But, so this, let's ask a little bit, uh, for a little bit of evidence on, um, are these traits socialized or biological, right? Now, of course, some of them are definitely socialized. Like I said, the color pink, I don't, I don't think that's biological. Um, but if these traits were more socialized, all of them across the board, and less biological than we would expect as a country becomes more egalitarian, then men and women start to become more similar in outcomes. Okay, so we can look at the Scandinavian countries. They are very egalitarian culturally. They have been for hundreds of years. The Nordic cultures, the Viking women were a you know, big part of the, the Viking family. They had a lot of power and authority. And then legally, uh, the Nordic countries have a lot of quotas for women. Um, you know, 40% of the board of directors of any public company has to be woman, women by quota. So we would expect if it's all um, social, that men and women would be very similar here. Actually, they're more different in those countries than in any other countries in the world. By temperament and interest, the more you freedom you give women, the more different they want to be from men. Um, so you can look at things like, uh, you know, how many hours they work and uh, how often they're in management, how many businesses they own, you know, they work less in general. There's just a lot of ways in which women, more so than anywhere else in the world, become different when you give them, in some ways, the freedom to do whatever they want. And that's what you see in the Nordic countries. A lot of the claims of oppression for women in the U.S. are simply we identify an area where men and women are different and one of them has some positive benefit and some harm and, and vice versa. And then we just pick, uh, we, we selectively pick. So give you an example. In the insurance field, men pay more for car insurance and life insurance because we drive worse and die sooner, right? Women pay more for health insurance. 
because they use more health care. So feminists, they look at the fact that women pay more for health care, and they're like, society is oppressing women. They ignore the other side, like men and women are different, and so sometimes the outcomes are different and favor women sometimes and men other times. Um, it's another discussion, but the gender pay gap is a complete myth once you control for the differences in choices that men and women make. So you should look at compensation not just as pay, but as a total package of flexibility and time off and benefits and gaps in employment. And it turns out that women value those things a lot more than money, and men tend to value money. So women tend to get more flexible hours and time off and gaps in employment. Men tend to get more money. And when you control for those choices they make, the gender pay gap uh, pretty much goes away. Uh, statistically, it goes down to about 2%, which most people think is a factor of maybe women are a little less inclined to ask for pay increases than men are because they're a little less aggressive on average. Um, but that doesn't mention the fact that the pay gap analysis doesn't look at control of spending. So the fact that my wife doesn't make as much money as I do doesn't really matter because we have the same bank account. <laughs> Um, and, and historically, if we just look 50 years ago, a lot of women had very little income. Um, it's probably like a low point in human history for women generating income, but yet they still controlled the family checkbook. So if you have the institution of marriage and two people becoming one, then to whatever degree this is a problem, it, it is no longer a problem. And of course, men have their own problems. Men make up about 93% of the prison population. I don't hear a lot of claims of systemic injustice, uh, and rightly so. Men are more violent, and that's why they go to prison more often. But their weaknesses have corresponding strengths, and men are told that their strengths are nothing that women can't do, and all of their weaknesses are toxic. And that's where they're left. So we've talked about gender characteristics. We've talked about gender roles. Let's talk very briefly about uh, gender itself. So it's a sad and kind of amusing fact that the church used to take flack for saying that gender roles existed. And very quickly, we've now started taking flack for saying that gender exists, um, which just shows when you start twisting truth, like second wave feminists did and many others before them, you can't control the truth that you're twisting. Like the Bible's message stays consistent. Truth stays consistent over time. But the lies, they have to keep changing them out because <laughs> they keep not working, right? So transgenderism, I think, was a natural outgrowth of second wave feminism because they narrowed the gap between what made men and women different till there was no gap anymore. But then they said that women are the oppressed class and you want to be, you know, you don't want to be an oppressor. So they created an incentive to jump that very small boundary between men and women. Um, so it's, it's pretty natural that that would happen. And all this pitting of men and women against each other is just a basic and age-old division tactic of Satan, right? So trying to figure out which gender is better, who contributes more, it's like trying to figure out whether the, the table legs or the tabletop are, are more important to the table. It, it's completely it's a pointless discussion, right? Because if differences, and those differences create something collectively in the family, in the church, in society as a whole. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 says this quite well. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Point two, marriage serves social as well as personal purposes. 
Marriage serves social as well as personal purposes. So in our individualist society, we tell young people that marriage is the most important decision they will ever make in life, and we're not going to help them out with it, so good luck with that. That's what we tell people. But in collectivist societies, to include the Bible, um, some level of arranged marriage was the norm. Now, I'm not going to say that there are no cons to that system, um, but there were some pros. So what would be the pros to arranged marriage? Support of the family. In, in what way? Instead of, because um, I see a lot of parents that don't like the new spouse. Oh, okay. So, so not supporting the new entity. So it's easier to have sort of intergenerational integration if everybody likes everybody. That makes sense. What else? Parents know some stuff. <laughs> That's good. What else? No online dating. No online dating, yeah. Uh, well, honestly, it, was, it might have been, in some ways, harder to find people. You had fewer choices. But in some ways, it was easier because people weren't as dissimilar. Um, it was very predictable what people were going to believe and what you know, the son of the tailor was going to be Taylor when he grew up, right? So there were just a lot fewer variables. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes, makes it hard to make choices uh, when you have too much. Yeah. It's, yeah, so in a sense, um, the parents are more likely to prioritize the, the big rock things, uh, and the individual is more likely to prioritize that sort of fluttery feelings, which parents know, meh, those wear off. <laughs> so they, they, they tend to focus in on what, what's going to matter more. Okay, so um, part of, the other thing I had on addition to that was the commitment you make is communal in their societies. Like, we, are, we're all have a, we all have skin in the game on this marriage. It affects all of us, as a lot of grandparents have learned when they started raising their grandchildren um, because their children's marriage fell apart. So I also point out that we're all in arranged marriages anyways, because we all chose who we married several years before the present, and we all change over time, right? So the younger version of myself chose marriage to Abby, not knowing where I would live or what job I would be having or what I would think about the world, you know, uh, eight years ago or so whenever I made that choice. Um, so in a sense, we're, we already have some of the downsides of that system. We're just not as aware that we have those downsides. So I'm not saying that arranged marriage is, is the way of the, the future, but I am saying that we can tap into some of the, the wisdom of that system by being more concerned with what the elders think um, than our society is at the moment. So is it the government's business to tell people who they can marry? So no, in my opinion, any more than it's the government's business to define murder. So murder was defined before the state. Um, it's a pre-political definition. We're all very clear on what murder means, and it's the job of the government to prevent this evil thing from happening or punish people for it when they commit that act, right? 
So it's not so much about the government making the decision, it's about the government enforcing the moral order which pre-exists the government, right? So can a gay man be allowed to marry? A libertarian, even the libertarian Christian, would tend to say, no, that's not the business of the state. But I think that's sort of asking the wrong question. It's kind of like asking, can a vegetarian eat meat? Well, yes, is the answer, but I'm not going to redefine lettuce as meat in order to say that the vegetarian is eating meat when the vegetarian is actually not eating meat, right? Similarly, can a pacifist join the military? I say absolutely, but we're not going to create a nonviolent version of the military to accommodate pacifists, right? And can a gay man marry? Absolutely. He can marry a woman because by definition, that's what marriage is. We do not simply change the definitions of things to accommodate personal preference, unless we're expressive individualists, of course. But the redefinition of marriage is ultimately a totalitarian overreach by the state, because the state has taken something pre-political and said, now this falls under our domain. Previously, this was the domain of God, and even of all of human history, right? Even if you're not a Christian, marriage has always been defined as between a man and woman. Um, so at that point, the state is, has, has completely overstepped its bounds. And ultimately, that which is not honored in public will not long be honored in private. So what the state says about things does matter, and what we recognize at the legal level matters. So I think we lost this fight, though, when we gave up about divorce, because the church is, is still fighting against the redefinition of marriage in this new sense, but we quit fighting against the no-fault no divorce laws a long time ago. That's not on really any conservative's radar to change those laws or even fight against them in any way, because we bought into the lie that marriage was just about your personal happiness, and we forgot that marriage serves social purposes beyond your personal fulfillment. Jesus had teachings on divorce that are much harsher than our own. He did have some exceptions, but he also forbade remarriage in at least most cases. So I'd encourage you to go do a Bible study on that yourself, but I'll read a few verses on it. 1 Corinthians 7.10, to the married, this is from Paul, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Mark 10.2, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, Jesus asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has enjoined together, let not man separate. Um, a little further on in the passage, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I did a study a little while ago. I said, I wonder if there's any time in scripture when divorce was... Um, Acceptable? Is there an example of a, a divorce done well? There are exceptions. I'm not going through all the exceptions in the Bible, right? But I actually found one. 
uh, and it is in Jeremiah 3.8. It is when God divorced Israel. It's metaphorical, but God does not sin even metaphorically, so I think we can still look at his example here. Jeremiah 3.8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Faithless Israel, a little further on, has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry together. So God got divorced from Israel in Jeremiah 3. And why did he do that? Ultimately, it was so that he could be reconciled to Israel. He thought that, which is metaphorical, but I think there's, there's something here, right? So he put Israel away so that Israel would realize that the sin and the magnitude of the adultery is actually what he's talking about here. It's kind of metaphorical too, but Israel committed adultery. God said, I have just cause to divorce you. I will divorce you. And then I will stand here and call for you to return to me. And when you repent and return, then I will accept you back. That is the one example of divorce in scripture that we know was conducted properly. It was not to make God happy um, in that sense, right? Or as a family member told me, Who, you know, who will marry me while I'm young enough and pretty enough to get along? And it wasn't to cause her husband to you know, repent and come back. It was so I could get on with my life. Again, with things that I'm not handling with appropriate nuance. Let's move on to point three. <laughs> children are a blessing. I don't want you to hear this from me. Children are a blessing because I only have one kid. I want you to hear this from Kevin DeYoung, because he has nine. <laughs> um, so he says, the reasons for declining fertility are no doubt many and varied. Sure, surely some couples want to have more children, but are unable to do so. Others struggle with economic pressures or health limitations. But fertility does not plummet worldwide without deeper issues at play, especially when people around the world are objectively richer, healthier, and afforded more conveniences than at any time in human history. Though individuals make their choices for many reasons, as a species, we are suffering from a profound spiritual sickness, a metaphysical malaise in which children seem a burden on our time and a drag on our pursuit of happiness. Our malady is a lack of faith. And nowhere is the disbelief more startling than in the countries that once made up Christendom. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, God promised the delighted Abraham. Today, in the lands of Abraham's offspring, that blessing strikes most as a curse. He talks somewhere else, um, and I'll read this to you as well. He's, he's uh, breaking down Carl Zimmerman's Family and Civilization, a book from 1947, is remembered as a book about family types, but it is fundamentally a book about fertility. Borrowing from Augustine and Aquinas, Zimmerman argues that the good of marriage and of family life more broadly depends on childbearing, sexual fidelity, and the permanence of the marriage bond. Zimmerman observes that the ordering of Augustine and Aquinas emphasizes childbearing, or prior to marriage, the intention of it, as the first and determinative step in the development of marital, marital fidelity and permanence. Without children, or an openness to children, the other two commitments lose their moral and logical coherence. Already in 1947, Zimmerman saw that an atomistic family, 
the family based on individualistic assumptions about happiness and the role of marriage, would lead to always listen to somebody's predictions in the past, see if they came true, and then we can ask whether what they said is important, would lead to rapid and groundless divorce, looser family structures would be offered as solutions to family problems. You hear that conversation going on all the time now. Maybe we should just have contract marriages for five, 10-year terms. Maybe we should have a lot more prenups. Maybe that will fix our, our pain with divorce. Um, only to make the problems worse, the stigmas in inhibiting adultery would deteriorate, fertility would decrease, sexual perversion would be normalized. He also predicted that the decline of fertility among intellectuals would embolden them to challenge the validity of marriage itself, so that it would take two generations, slowed by immigration, for family decay to become evident. And the Christian church would be the only cultural institution capable of encouraging a view of family grounded in something other than personal fulfillment. So marriage exists, at least in part, to create and sustain children. There are intentionally unmarried people in Scripture. Paul talks about this. There's a role for unmarried people, even, even people that choose to be unmarried. But there are no intentionally childless married people anywhere in Scripture. It, it doesn't exist. The concept would not have computed for most of the people, so it's not even addressed. Um, that is a wholly modern concept, at least for Christians. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Jesus said, Matthew 19, 14, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 113, 9, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Also not handled with sufficient nuance, moving to point four. <laughs> Family obligations bind parents to children for life. Family obligations bind parents to children for life. Children honoring their parents is one of the most fundamental building blocks of a healthy society. You'll recall that of the Ten Commandments, the first four are about God, the next six are about our relationships with each other. The first of those six is what? Honor your father and your mother, right? So what does this word honor mean? In Hebrew, the word is kavad. It, it literally means weighty means to give weight to, give special significance to what your parents say, to their beliefs, to their preferences, to the example they set. Consider it to be more important than the example set by others. Um, how big a deal is this to God that we honor our parents? Well, I can tell you that in the Old Testament, there are three death sentences associated with children not honoring their parents. Uh, and this would certainly include adult children, right? So Exodus 21.5, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Leviticus 29, anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 21.18, if a man is stubborn and has a rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders of the city at the gate, the place where he lives. They shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son. He's stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. This sounds like an adult, not a child. A glutton and a drunkard. 
Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So why do you think children learning to honor their parents is important? Chronological snobbery. Yes. To believe that we are superior, moral, all those things. Honestly, and as someone who enjoys studying the past, I'm like, no, you are completely clever. They had the right idea most of the time, and they really couldn't place it there. So you're getting at the fact that when children don't learn to honor their parents, they inherently don't learn to honor anyone. And I think that's, that's why it's first. Um, because children do need to honor their parents, of course, but they also need to learn the trait, the ability to honor anyone. Because if they have a teacher, if they have a boss, if they have God Almighty, there are other people that they need to honor. And when children are small, the only one they can understand that they need to honor is their parent. And it's very natural. It comes very natural to a small child to weight the beliefs and preferences and opinions of their, their parents highly. So that has to be developed. So what do parents owe to their children on the other side? What do parents owe their kids? Good instruction. Yeah. Yeah. Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. And when you lie, and when you rise. So parents have that obligation to their children to teach them virtue, to teach them how to think, and sometimes to teach them some things to think. Because a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to teach my kids what to think, just how to think. But you can't think about anything without building blocks of truth to work with. Now, it, it's important, um, you know, th there, there's some truth to the fact you don't want to teach your kids that every opinion I have, you have to share. Um, no, you don't want to do that. But ultimately, our civilization, our church, has learned some things. God also revealed some things. And those things need to be transferred to the next generation. Because we are only ever one generation away from complete uh, barbarity. Right? If, if all of us just didn't teach our kids anything, all of the progress of all of human civilization would be lost. Because it all has to be transferred every single generation. And so when it comes to teaching obedience, the Bible is quite clear. Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it might go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I will agree that in reality, obedience is not an inherent virtue. It's an instrumental one. Right? It's kind of like freedom. It's what you do with it. It's like faith. Well, it's who do you have your faith in? That matters a lot. So, obedience is right and proper when you're obeying a legitimate authority, operating within the bounds of their authority. And that's why some of these passages say, obey your parents in the Lord. Right. So there's a little bit of a, a caveat there. And that's why it's so important that parents have a huge responsibility to give their children a safe person to obey so that they can learn to form this trust of authority 
And then also, that's how you teach them not to be gang members and Nazis. You teach them what proper authority looks like, and they will quickly recognize that the gang leader is not proper authority, and the things he's asking them to do are not proper, and they're not in the Lord. Right? So this is, it's not actually that difficult of an objection to overcome. But furthermore, parental obligations exist past your 18th birthday. The biblical injunction, obey your parents, ends when you cease to be a child because it says children obey your parents. But the injunction to honor your parents does not disappear at any point, uh, as we see very clearly from the Old Testament and New. So let me ask you this. Let me give you a bonus point here. What is a traditional family? When I say that phrase, and I, I want you to think about... Uh, you know, Christian and, and Judeo history, right? So just think back in the past few thousand years, the whole time period. If I say, what is a traditional family? What is that to you? What are the characteristics of a traditional family? Yeah. Right. So we'll we'll unpack that. But let's say um, if if you just go to a a, a typical right wing political rally and they're like, we got to support the traditional family. What is the typical person in that rally? Mom, dad, kids, and maybe man, woman, um, and maybe for life. Right. So that that would be traditional family. Mom, dad, kids. Okay. That's the nuclear family. So that's, we're going to call this my fifth point. Um, the traditional family is more robust than we remember. The traditional family is more robust than we remember. So there are at least five elements of a traditional family. I'm drawing this from Yoram Hazani in his book, uh, Conservatism Rediscovered. Uh, he is an Orthodox Jew, so he has a Judeo perspective. But I think this rings very true to Scripture. So thing one, the lifelong bond between a man and woman. Okay, we've got that. Thing two, the lifelong bond between a parent and child. We've just covered that a little bit. Interlocking generations of responsibility. Um, the traditional family, uh, point three, is a business enterprise. It's kind of interesting. And I'm not saying this is a biblical mandate, but I'm saying this is the traditional family. So historically, farming, commerce, light manufacturer were conducted very close to home, and the whole family participated in whatever the trade was. So it's not just that like women working is a new thing. That's not. Um, traditionally, families work together on, uh, on projects. Um, parents and children were, were both involved, and often that extended even further. There were young, unmarried men and women who didn't have strong families that would come in and be a hired hand. And they would be incorporated as a member of the family, live inside the family. Uh, four, the traditional family consists of multiple generations in daily contact. Multiple generations in daily contact. Yes, the Bible does say to leave your father and your mother, but most of the people who would have read that would have interpreted that as move next door. Um, not necessarily, I have to move across the country. Right? Um, and number five, the traditional family is integrated with a congregation. So a, a religious and, and communal kind of experience, someone that you would celebrate feasts and holidays and, and special events with. So five points on family. Two of them I think we kind of get um, 
really, I think most conservatives just get the first one, lifelong bond between a man and woman. Second, lifelong bond between parent and child. I've already emphasized business enterprise, multiple generations in daily contact, and integrated in a broader congregation. So let me give you the words of Yoram Hazany um, in an article he wrote. The title of the article is, The Nuclear Family Has Failed. As much as anyone who has lived among such families, traditional families, can immediately see, the nuclear family is a weakened and much diminished version of the traditional family, one that is lacking most of the resources needed to effectively pursue the purposes of the traditional family. When this conception of the family became normative in America and elsewhere after the Second World War, it gave birth to a world of detached suburban homes conducted, uh, connected by distant places of employment and by schools to trains, automobiles, and buses. In other words, the physical design of large portions of the country reflected a newly rationalized conception of what a family is. In this new reality, there were no longer any business enterprises in the home for the family to pursue together. Now, this is, and he says elsewhere, this is just a result of the Industrial Revolution. It's kind of something that happened. Not necessarily something evil, but as a result of that, fathers would go to work, seceding from their families during their productive hours each day. Children were required to go to school, seceding from the family during their own productive hours. Young adults would then go away to college, cutting themselves off from family influence during the critical years in which they were supposed to reach maturity. Similarly, grandparents were excised from this vision of the home being retired to retirement communities or nursing homes. Under this new division of labor, mothers were assigned the task of remaining by themselves in the house each day, attempting to make a home, using the minimalist ingredients that the structure of the nuclear family had left them. Much of this involved increasingly desperate efforts to keep adolescents somehow attached to the family, even though they now shared virtually no productive purposes with their parents, grandparents, and broader community or congregation and instead spent their days seeking honor among other adolescents. The resulting rupture between parents and children was poignantly described in numerous books and films beginning in the 50s. But these works rarely touched upon the redefinition of the family, which had done so much to inflame the natural tendency of adolescence toward agonized rebellion, while depriving parents of the tools necessary to emerge from these years with the family hierarchy strengthened. But mothers had the worst of this new family life. Some did succeed in maintaining the cohesion of their families in a world in which grandparents and other family relations had grown impossibly distant. The family businesses had disappeared from the home. The congregation or community with its Sabbaths and festivals had likewise been reduced to something accessible by automobile once a week, like a drive-in movie. However, many other housewives despaired and turned to the feminist movement, which, not without reason, declared the nuclear family to be a tomb for women. So that's not from the Bible. And the author, like I said, is an Orthodox Jew rather than a Christian. But I find that uh, incredibly interesting. And I find that rings true with Scripture, a lot of those things. Again, not, not making up commands that aren't in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say you have to have a family business. It doesn't say that. But I'm, I'm struggling this with myself because I actually just came across this concept this idea about six months ago uh, in this particular author. So I'm one of five. We're very individualistic. Um, we live in California, Alabama, Tennessee. I'm here by myself in Missouri. 
And since I moved away from home at 18, the closest I've ever lived to home is three hours away. And I've spent six years living in other countries, right? So I am a, I'm a hyper-individualist. Um, family reunions are, are very difficult. This sort of idealized daily contact with aunts and uncles and grandparents is just impossible. Um, twice a year contact is about the best we can pull off with both sides of the family, and that's a strain. Uh, 10 hours, 15 hours, twice a year, two places, that's tough. So what can I do about that? I'm not sure. Um, one thing that I have done at a minimum is I've evaluated my own perspective um, because I used to just downright judge people who lived close to their parents. Like they didn't have anything worth doing with their life. Um, couldn't even get out of town. Yeah, right? And so, you know, there, there are some things that, that I've done. Um, you know, I chose a career path that allows me to work from home a lot, which, you know, the Industrial Revolution took us away from home, but the kind of work from home revolution gives us a, an opportunity to go back to some degree. And so I get to be around my, you know, small child during lunch sometimes and not just bookending the day, right? Um, but I think this conception of the traditional family, it's an ideal. And like all ideals, we may not live up to them, but what we establish as our cultural ideal is going to shape our behavior. And I'm living my ideal, right? I'm an individualist and a very Christian individualist. All of the things I've done have been to further God's kingdom. Like, straight up. That's why I've done everything I've done. But... At the same time, I'm losing something that I didn't even have a concept that I was losing because nobody knew. Because we thought the high watermark of the family was 1950, and it just wasn't. That was in some ways a family redefinition that we as a church just missed. Um, and then, of course, it goes downhill from there. But, but I, I, didn't, I didn't catch it. So... There you go. What do you think about this conception that the, that the, the traditional family is more robust than the nuclear family, as an ideal anyways? What, what's your take on that? It was new to me. Not new to you, apparently. You're reading what I'm reading. I had never, I had never been around family since I was little tiny. I, was never, I never had grandparents. I never had aunts or uncles. We just had a, just the six of us. You know, and then that generation, we all took off. You know, I mean, and then my family's like yours, spread out all over the place. Um, but what I do know is that since I've become a Christian, you know, and raised our kids in that environment, for us, the church has replaced the family. And all over the United States, in a foreign country, God has brought people at different seasons to be grandparents to my kids, to be parents to me, well, not anymore, but in front of was you know, years younger. Um, you know, but it, I mean, so it, I do, I, I do agree. And that was something I didn't even understand until I became a grandparent. The value of multi-generational, because I was never exposed to it, mm -hmm. you know, but I see it in our life when we get the opportunity, you know, those long times that we get to be with our grandkids and just the 
the opportunity you have to speak into their life and the value of that, you know. But I do also know that in a situation where you've chosen because God has called you to move away from your family as well, in our situation, he's always been faithful to put replacements in there that are not biological family, but actually probably in some ways, for me anyway, more forever. Well, and that's part of this conception. I mean, point five was the congregation is a part of the traditional family. So I think a lot of conservatives, Christians, have retained that, that pillar, right? So they've kind of got the first one, lifelong bond between men and women, maybe, maybe not with the parent-child thing. They've got the fifth one, but they're still missing some robustness that we didn't even know we were missing. Stephen. Yeah. Traditional families have baggage too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's a very interesting concept. Um, so let me, let me just put this out to you. What it, we talked about lies, we talked about truth. I'm going to roll up uh, some, some church points real quick here and some application that I've just baked into that. But I'll throw out the question to you two first. What does this look like in the church? What are these lies done? So the points were rejection of the differences between husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sort of adult-centric, happiness-oriented marriage, children as a burden, and the idea that they're radically autonomous individuals who owe nothing to their families. What, in your experience, how has that come into the church? Kids are not allowed in the worship center. In a lot of churches. Kids are not allowed in the worship center. And how would you, how would you connect that? I, I think I see it, but yeah, unpack it. If, if the corporate says they're a burden, and then we say, well, they may they may make noise in there and ruin the atmosphere.
I can't make them up too high. But anyway, <laughs> I know I have, I lived in your generation of church. So, so. <laughs> it's amazing how we allowed the culture to change us instead of the church changing the culture. Hmm. I even know of several instances of people kind of prioritizing um, over like having their kids honor them and in churches because this church doesn't have a good teaching for me, but I've got a good service for my kids. Mm-hmm. Like, well, <laughs> that's that's kind of backwards. Yeah. Or like, I know some people who said, "Oh, well, uh, my parents asked my oldest uh, sibling if they still wanted to go to church, and they said no, so the whole family stopped." I think the only time that I ever actually like have to pull them and like leave the church and go back is we're considering purchasing another portion of land. Because we're like, oh, we got two million dollars to spend, so we got to want to like we're not gonna make another building. How many chairs do you need? And I was like, I don't need this church to do that. And you too bad you encourage me to go back. But I think I've been asked to leave that church several times, but never did because Yeah. Well, the the thing is too, and um, you know, we talked about hierarchy before. There's there's a balance between trying to you know be the individual who wants to see all the right things and encourage everyone the right way, and then also the balance of just at some point you have to accept and and go along with. And it sounds like in that case, you know, you expressed some concerns to your parents, but there were other factors at play, and in you know at the end you honored those other factors, which is seems wise. Um, I'll go through a couple of my points, and you, you'll probably come up with things you want to say as I go through them. So, um, like I said, I've, I've kind of rolled the application and, and, and lie or church problems here together. Um, face value acceptance of divorce in the church. Um, the idea that when two Christians are considering divorce, or even when one Christian is considering divorcing a non-believer, um, the default advice of everyone in the church they talk to should be fight for your marriage. That should be default advice. Again, not saying there are no exceptions. I'm saying that's the default position. Um, so are there exceptions? Yes. You being unhappy is not one of the exceptions. <laughs> you being really unhappy is not one of the exceptions. And that is not the advice um, that, that people are getting. Um, very little teaching on what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, because frankly, it's just too hard for most people to handle, or at least that's the perception of it. And then the application I would give to, to married folks is, Burn the ships. When Cortez came to the Americas and he was going to take on the Aztecs, he burned his ships. Why? So his men knew, you fight or die. That's how we should view our marriages. I'm married to that woman until the day she dies or I die, or if anything breaks our marriage, I'm going to spend the rest of my life pursuing reconciliation. I don't have another option. I don't have a plan B. That's the mentality that we need to bring to our marriages. Um, and, teach our kids. and teach our kids that. Yeah, not teaching that. Um, in, regards to, in regards to men and women, instead of minimizing our differences, let's make the most out of them, right? 
Um, assume that men and women on average are bringing different skills and perspectives to the table. So we'll try to get as many as we can to the table. And we might understand that some tables might lean a little more heavy on women and some more on men. And that's okay. Um, so, and don't just think about your role as a spouse or parent. Think about it as a husband or a father or a wife or mother because they're different roles and, and the Bible focuses on it that way. Um, third one I have is we need to view children like God does. Um, I don't think it's my place to judge someone at the individual level for having too many or too few kids. Um, it's a decision that God largely leaves to the individual family. However, I would draw a parallel to financial generosity and say, I can't tell you how much money you need to be giving, but I know God wants you to be giving. That's very clear in Scripture. can't tell you how many kids you should have or adopt or what your circumstances are, but I know God likes them, and we as a collective should value them as well. The next one I have is do not outsource the raising of your children. Now, the Bible doesn't say you have to homeschool your kids, but the Bible does say that parents are responsible for teaching children the words of God. Um, church ministry is a nice supplement that doesn't alleviate our responsibility. Um, we can and should use other godly family as well as a supplement, but that does not alleviate our responsibility. Um, and if you choose to allow your kids, especially young kids, to spend a lot of time with non-Christians, you have to work overtime to compensate for that because they are getting taught something by their peers, uh, school, where, from TV, wherever else they're getting non-Christian input. Uh, last, next one I have is uh, let's expect more from our kids. And I don't mean academically, because we probably expect too much academically already, but there's a general expectation in our culture that kids will rebel, and they live down to that expectation, right? Um, but if we look at, as a church, look at kids like they're supposed to be contributors as well as consumers, and maybe they'll start to see themselves in the same way. Um, and maybe giving them the freedom to walk around the block at some, some stage might be a part of making them think they have capacity, have the ability to contribute, and they're not just prisoners yearning to be free. Yeah, Stephen. Uh, Next one I have is that neglecting your parents emotionally or financially is just as bad as neglecting your children. That seems to be a biblical point. So we should all aspire to take care of our parents to whatever degree we can in their old age. And I applaud many of you in the room who I know have done that or, or are doing that. And we as a community should support you in that effort as well. Um, and the last one I have is we need to value our family above our own careers and above our own ministry. Because if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, it's not a good trade. If you gain the whole world and lose your family, it's not a good trade. 